Stop the steal. We're going to walk down and I'll be there with you to the Capitol. Join host Frank Falvey and our roundtable, Harvard Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we navigate the unique journey of America toward a more perfect union. Witness one Donald J. Trump, a man who would be king. But democracy and the Constitution denied him, as he tried to deny democracy through insurrection. Hello, this is a journey to a more perfect union. I'm Frank Falvey, your host, and today is February 11th, Thursday, and the impeachment trial has begun. Beside our regular panel, I do want to introduce Matt Rovendro. He and I have produced some constitutional access TV programming in the past, and Matt for years has been part of a Franklin Senior Center discussion group that has been ongoing. So uh, welcome, Matt. Uh, What I would like to say to begin the program is the Capitol as National Guard troops checkpoints, eight-foot high fences with barbed wire on the top of it, surrounding a Capitol building in which there is an impeachment trial going on. What is it that you would like the listening audience to understand to help them navigate through what points you think are important in this impeachment trial? And what do you want individuals to think about one way or the other, of the outcome. How is that going to affect the history of the United States and us going forward? One of the things that is happening in this country is we can't civilly have conversations, and we call other people by terrible names and accusations. Here, we're going to demonstrate how we have a civil conversation among people that strongly see things from different points of view. So what point of view would someone like to open with? I'm Matt Rovendro, and I am representing myself today. I am not representing any other organizations uh, to which I belong. There are uh, at least two others, one of which is that discussion group that you have mentioned from the Franklin Senior Center. Throughout the 10, 12, 14 years that I've been involved in that senior center discussion group, we have discussed the Constitution. We have discussed the what I like to say is government, which many people say are political conversations. I approach it differently. My resource, generally speaking, is the Constitution and the Federalist Papers. Today, I'm going to say I'm a little bit confused. I don't know that this document and this constitution that I normally refer to, 
actually is the book that I swore allegiance to twice in my lifetime. I was in the Air Force and I swore allegiance to, to defend the Constitution. I'm not sure that I know what the Constitution is anymore. And that's being demonstrated in the meetings that have been taking place in Washington, which you characterize kind of interestingly by, by pointing out that there are troops and barbed wire there. That already sets a tone for, I think, your position. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but that's the way I'm hearing what you said. Now, there are troops there, and that is sad, no doubt about it. On the other hand, I'm not sure why the 6,500 troops are there. So with that, with that, let me say what I really hope is that we return to a constitutional government that I understand, that is out, actually written out in a form that everybody can read. And maybe it ought to be revised to the extent that all the Supreme Court decisions that have been made which have affected the Constitution are all included because there is in the Constitution a provision for how to modify it. And that is done by all of the people in, the, in our nation. It is not done by just the nine people or maybe 10 or 12 or 14, whatever is going to be in the next few months. Now that characterizes my position, doesn't it? See, I believe that the Constitution is no longer the document that we use. So I don't know how to refer to it anymore. In fact, there is, as you know, in Article 2, a, a definition of what impeachment is and who should be impeached. Well, I found out two days ago, listening to uh, the Democrat presentation, that's not what the Constitution says. The Constitution says you can impeach anybody you want to, right? Whether they're in office or not. Well, gee, that's new to me. So does, is that a sufficient entry for my position? Did I answer your question? Well, that's a good entry for me, and I'd like to chime in because I, I want to go directly to the issue of troops in Washington, which I am opposed to as well. I think that building should be wide open, but I understand those troops are there because a group of thugs tried to interfere with the constitutional process of a transition and a peaceful transition of power. And that's why those troops are there because people attempted violently to interfere with that constitutional operation. In terms of uh, impeachment, which is really what's going on as we have this discussion, you know, impeachment is a way, it's an indictment, it's a charge against somebody who's done something, you know, a high crime or misdemeanor. Just what those are, it remains somewhat elusive because the wording uh, is not particular. But if we look at the Federalist, and Alexander Hamilton wrote that impeachment is a method of national inquest into the conduct of public men accused of violating the public trust. That's what he wrote in Federalist 65. And that's the inquiry that's taking place today and over the past couple of days in Washington, D.C. It's not a process that's being abused. It's not a process that's being overused. In fact, in the history of our great country, 240 years, there have only been 17 impeachments. Four of them have involved presidents. Two of them have involved the same president. And it's a way for us to look 
and examine what those people did and whether they should be held to account for what they did. And of those 17 impeachments that we have seen over the history of our country, only seven of them have resulted in convictions and removal from office. And they have not all been of people who are currently sitting in that office. Uh, that was the first uh, inquiry that I think was made in this trial, whether this is constitutional. And uh, I think uh, the overwhelming amount of legal scholars have certainly come to the uh, belief and understanding that this is a legally and constitutional process, regardless of the fact that uh, the person is not currently in office. It's, uh, I think, the, the best phrase that I've heard in, in remarking on this is that there is no January exception to bad behavior. If you act badly, you ought to be held accountable. There are several ways to be held accountable. Impeachment is a civil process. The Senate cannot jail somebody who has conducted a public wrong. The only thing they can do is remove them from office and or disqualify them from holding future public office. They use the conjunctive and to say, remove from office and disqualify from future public office. So uh, that's the, uh, the process that's going on. And we need the troops down there to protect people because there are some that don't believe that what is happening is constitutional uh, or in the best interest of the country. And so they want to prevent it from happening. And we need to have uh, troops to allow our government to proceed in the manner in which it was designed. Um, so this is Natalia. And, and thanks, uh, Jeff. I am not a legal scholar. I'm not a constitutional expert. So let me take sort of a step back and, and talk about it, how I view it as just an average, you know, person who has been watching what happened, who felt that our democracy was under attack, the concept of transition, a peaceful transition, something that I've worked at the United Nations for over a decade, something that we hold as fundamental to democratic processes everywhere, and whether it's election fraud, whether it's anything else. And it feels a little bit that we need to take that look. What did the actions of January 6th undermine our trust in democracy? And for a layperson like myself, you know, I'm an epidemiologist, so in other discussions, I can consider myself a technical expert. In this one, I'm not. It feels that we need to talk about impeachment, not just by the book, but also by the meaning, the symbolic meaning. Uh, how do we restore faith in our processes? And how do we ensure that this doesn't happen again, that we don't have a dictatorship in this country? Um, I also grew up in Greece, where the military did come in and there was a dictatorship. So maybe I'm a little bit more wary, but I believe that we need to be serious and recognize that the violence that we saw was not trivial. And so there have to be consequences. Taking it from that perspective, I would love to, to hear others too. Thanks. You know, Matt, this is uh, Michael Walker-Jones. And uh, again, welcome, Matt. And I'm glad to have you join us uh, for our discussion today. I bring a, a different perspective than you or Frank on two aspects. One, I believe it is a sacred trust for our legislative members that they will be able to do their work in a safe and peaceful environment. And I think, as Jeff eloquently put it, there were insurgents who disrupted that peace and safe environment, which then dictates that we have to somehow or another reconstruct that environment to make it safe for them again. 
that's what we're in the process of doing. I have no problem with those troops being there until some solution is worked out. It's not going to be tomorrow, but hopefully we will be able to return to a situation where people will be able to enter the that Capitol building again. But in the meantime, I want my legislative members of Congress to feel safe. Second, this country has a history of violence. Some of that violence has never demonstrated itself in the way that, besides the time of the Civil War, was never demonstrated in a way that we witnessed on January 6th. The impeachment of the former president has at least shown me in the last, uh, uh, just yesterday, some things that, because at first I thought this was about his actions and the events on uh, January 6th. However, I think they've done a wonderful job of explaining and sort of drawing the line between last summer when this particular point of view that the election was going to be called a rigged election all the way up to January 6th in terms of how that grew has been not only revealing, but also very disturbing, especially for me when it's uh, as a black American, when there's the possibility that the person who was our commander in chief may walk away from this with no consequences, no civil consequences at all, which then leaves us to the idea, will he be then criminally prosecuted? Because I think there are some crimes that did take place as well. I guess uh, my particular point of view is that, no, nothing's going to happen to him because he was a person of power, because he was a white person of power, because in this country we still have this a dichotomy of justice systems, one for those who have the means and one for those who don't have the means. I, like you, though, Matt, still believe in the Constitution, albeit I don't believe that the Constitution was ever intended to be static. The founders put in place a document that I've read, not only through the Federalist Papers, but also through the, through the Constitution itself, that evolves and continues to be relevant to the people. Now, I say that as a historian, and especially as a black historian, when you look at the legitimacy, for example, of one of the most controversial aspects of our Constitution, and that's slavery. The legality of slavery was, without question, one of the strong volumes of law between the 1700s, the 1800s, and up to Plessy versus Ferguson. And then from there, again, the law around slavery uh, kept evolving to still keep us apart and to keep slavery and Jim Crow alive. And not until the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And there is a repository of all of the changes that have been made by the Supreme Court, uh, Matt, as you well know, to the Constitution. And there are volumes and volumes of it at every single level from both the district court level all the way up to the Supreme Court. And I happen to have a whole series of that for slavery and as well as for civil rights. But I'd be interested in hearing your point of view regarding you don't recognize it. And, and so what's driving that for you? It's interesting. Uh, everybody mentions the Constitution, and yet I'm not sure we are all talking about that same Constitution. As you well know, the Constitution doesn't have a word slavery in it. Is that correct? Prior to the Civil War, 
when you looked at how people were counted for the census, what did the Constitution say regarding those people who were in servitude? Let me ask you a question slightly differently. Why do you think they were included as three-fifths of a voting person? For purposes of deciding how many representatives would be uh, assigned Correct. to states that had slaves. Why do you think they did that? Why? It, yeah. was a, it was a compromise brought up by those states that held slaves wherein they could have overwhelmed the entire electoral system if you counted each and every one of those slaves as a full human being. Exactly. They were attempting to do was to make sure that the southern states weren't going to use the Constitution to keep slavery in place. So they reduced the amount of representation by referring to them as less than as three-fifths of a being counted toward the representation of those states. So essentially what they were saying is, we don't want slavery to be part of our constitution. We want slavery not to be part of our culture. In fact, in very short period of time, after the constitution was signed, there was a proclamation about slavery in the expansion of the country. Slavery was not allowed in the Western advancement of, of our geography. You're smiling, so you must have a comment about what I just said. The word slavery does appear in the Constitution in Section 1 Thank of you. the 13th Amendment, which is a part of the Constitution. And they made it clear that neither slavery nor involuntary certitude uh, shall exist within the United States. So that was in uh, 1865. Thank you for clearing that up. You're absolutely correct. My comment should have been much more inclusive to say that there is no way where they were justifying slavery in the Constitution. Let's go, though, to the impeachment of one of our presidents because he violated the provisions of the anti-slavery Constitution and he also yielded to allow the Southern Civil War rebels to become part uh, back into the political framework of the South again. That impeachment ended up again in another compromise. And that compromise was the taking away of Jim Crow laws. And as a matter of fact, he was not found guilty, but the impeachment itself exposed the controversy of not only the, the new freedmen's rights to vote, to participate as citizens, but also exposed, again, one of the elements of this country, which is this sort of dual justice system. And I think there's a parallel to what we're looking at today that some of us miss, which is that if the former president is not found guilty of something that now we have records of video and audio, not just document, but we have evidence that is right in front of us that point to the culpability and guilt of this person in the civil sense, in terms of violation of the insurgency laws and the insurgency provision of the Constitution, that I'm going to feel extremely let down by the system, Matt, that here it is, evidence right in front of our faces, and yet, and I understand that the impeachment is a political process, 
But here it is, a person's going to get off because of their station in life, which again gets us to this imbalance of equality. Now, again, this was not tested out, but if this person had been a person of color, and let's say that it had been Barack Obama, I don't think we'd be having the same level of discussion right now, because I think there would be probably on the Democratic side, hopefully, some support. But if Barack Obama had done these same things, I would hope that the Democrats would have been true enough to their oath to where they would have had no other choice but to say, you know what, you did wrong, buddy, and we're going to have to hold you accountable. The discussion has become about slavery and about racism, and it's slightly different from what I thought the topic would be today. And let me just make one comment. You referenced the ongoing impeachment trial right at the moment, and you said there was evidence that is before us that proves that the president ginned up this insurrection. Is that correct? Well, two things. One, in my defense, I'm not trying to change this into a discussion on racism or slavery, Matt. I'm trying to talk about the inequality of the system in terms of how I'm viewing it now as it's playing itself out. And the evidence so far seems to indicate by what I've seen, uh, I'm waiting for the defense. But thus far, I guess, in my opinion, what I've seen is evidence that says there was this dotted line that goes all the way from last summer to now in terms of things being ginned up by the former president. Continuing the roundtable discussion, Pete, do you have any comment at this point? Uh, I'd like to put a little context on everything. First of all, the issue of racism isn't far away from this because of the fact that so many of the people involved in the rioting, the Proud Boys, QAnon, are all white supremacists. Let's call it what it is. There is a very, very large group within the rioters that is being motivated fundamentally by some element of racism. Now, switching gears for a moment, it's hard to imagine Barack Obama bullying every single Democrat and threatening every single Democrat about their upcoming elections. What we have here is a bully in a China shop, plain and simple. Trump has attacked, 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 continues to attack. And even though Twitter is gone, he still threatens the cowering Republicans, craven though they be, to the point where they will not rise up in unison against him. Imagine the GOP senators marching up and down with picket signs in front of Mar-a-Lago saying, no more. That is an alternate reality that we will never see, unfortunately. He can attack them individually. He cannot attack them collectively. And they have not yet figured that out. Finally, as far as the timeline goes, whether we are impeaching a president, present, past, whatever, consider the fact that the impeachment process, the indictment began while he was still in office. The process had begun while he was still president. Within that process, note that Nancy Pelosi called on the Senate to reconvene timely while he was in office. Had they done so while he was in office, and begun their aspect of the impeachment process, everything would be present day. But justice delayed is justice denied. And here's a classic case where simply delaying the second part of impeachment in the Senate until he was out of office is a game changer in the minds of some people looking for a get out of jail card. 
And I think that once the process has begun with the then president still in office, that process is allowed to continue to fruition, to conclusion. There are technical arguments here with respect to the timeline that have to be considered. But my view is impeachment is impeachment, past or present, and the remedy can be exercised whether he remains in office or not. That's my view. What I fear is going to happen as a result of that is we're going to have a verdict in this case. And in all likelihood, it's going to be a verdict that acquits the president of the United States. And I fully expect that what I will hear from those who voted to acquit the president is that they never believed that this was a constitutional process. And they're going to take that as an out. So we're never going to have a decision on the merits of what happened. We're never going to have a decision as to whether or not there's a causal link between what the former president did and that insurrection of January 6th. Unfortunately, I think most who will vote to acquit him will take the easy way out and will not make the judgment. Now, the, the minority leader, Mitch McConnell, has said when you take that vote, it will be a vote of conscience. And I appreciate his statement along those lines. And he will say, just because you did not vote for the constitutionality of this proceeding, you still have to exercise your judgment. My fear, my reasoned belief is that those folks will not exercise a vote of conscience. They will exercise a procedural vote, which to me undermines and weakens the entire uh, process. They're sitting as jurors and they should vote on the conduct. I'm not going to quarrel with how they vote. They are seeing the evidence and uh, I respect jurors. I've been a trial lawyer for 34 years and I believe very strongly in the, in the jury to get it right, to listen to the evidence and make the decision. And there aren't many of us who sit and watch a trial from beginning to end. If you watch a trial from beginning to end, then I think you're in a position to cast a judgment. And uh, these senators are sitting, watching a trial from beginning to end. They're sitting in silence. They're supposed to be paying attention. And I hope they exercise the judgment and the power to exercise that judgment that's been given to them under our Constitution. Um, and as long as they do that, as a matter of conscience, uh, I'll, I'll accept the decision, however they do it. But I don't like a procedural twist that will let them avoid making that ultimate judgment. Jeff, you just said that apparently the decision is not going to be one that you like. You said that the decision has already been made. We know that they're all going to vote along party lines, and therefore he's, he's going to be acquitted, if you will. And you just said you should listen to the trial from beginning to end. You haven't even heard the defense so far. So I'm a little bit confused on your presentation. I said specifically that I will not cast a, I will not fault anybody for how they vote, but I expect that they will take a vote of conscience and exercise a judgment, which is their constitutional duty. How this 
comes out, I pretty much understand what the result of this trial is going to be. But what it does, we don't have to rely on just the judgment of this body. The American people are watching this and they will form their own judgments about uh, what they saw and what they felt and whether these folks should be uh, returned to office. And I'm, I'm comfortable with that no matter how this uh, decision ends. And you just arrived exactly where I was going. One of the supposed uh, penalties that, and I'm going to say Trump, nobody has said Trump yet. They keep saying a former president. I think that's also kind of informative. But on the other hand, if Trump has created an insurrection, if he has been instrumental in preparing and planning this insurrection, I believe that's against the law and he will be subject to penalty if that is true, no matter that he was the former president, because as we all like to say, nobody's above the law. Although the law in its application, as Michael has pointed out, sometimes it does not work out to be fair because it can be used by rich people much better than poor people. So if he's guilty of insurrection, he's going to go to jail. If he's not guilty of insurrection, the second part of the, the expectation is that we will keep him from running for office. Is that a, let's say, democratic point of view? Shouldn't the people, as Jeff just pointed out, have the right to not vote for him if he runs for office again? Or do you want to preclude the people from having that right? The amendment after the Civil War to exclude people that had federal offices and yet became part of the government or the military of the South. That's why the amendment seemed to me as passed. So if you apply that ruling to the present situation, it makes sense. But let me say this. I believe that we are now on a road to indict and bring resolutions against every president that is going to come to office in the future. Already in the House of Representatives, there is a resolution to impeach Joe Biden for acts that they say happened before he became president. If we can't impeach people after they leave office for acts, can we impeach people for acts that happened before they became president. This is no longer a grounding understanding of the Constitution. This is now a political power. Mitch McConnell, who, when he has power, he has power. Joe Biden, when he has power, he has the power. When you have the power, then you change your point of view. You change how you look at the Constitution. I think coming back Yes, the trial is not over, but man, the presentations so far of the House of Representatives have simply been riveting and factual, in my opinion. Are they factual? There seems to be every reason to believe they are factual. Yeah, but let's, let's uh, put this in context. We're not talking about a criminal trial here, and we're not talking about convicting him of a crime, and we're not talking about convicting him of insurrection under the 14th Amendment. We're talking solely about impeachment and whether he should be removed from office and disqualified 
from holding future office. Matt, I have to say I'm in agreement with you that I'm troubled by the question of whether he should be disqualified from holding future office. I'd be satisfied with a conviction on the impeachment and not taking the step to disqualify him from future office. I believe in the power of the people to make the decision as to whether or not he should be elected again. And I will go out and say, if the Republican Party is foolish enough to nominate him to run for president in 2024, God bless them all. Because in November of 2020, he lost the election by a pretty sizable amount. And that was before folks knew about the insurrection. And the insurrection certainly will be an issue if he were to run in 2024. And you want to put that candidate against anybody we can come up with on the Democratic side. And I'm not saying you, Matt, because I don't think that from knowing you and from participating with you in those senior groups, I can't believe in my wildest dreams that that's who you would want to be nominated for president in 2024. But I will agree with you that perhaps disqualification is too far a road to take. And I'm not sure that my colleagues on the panel would agree with that, but that's my thought. That's pretty fair, Jeff. And I think that uh, I've treated you the same way in our previous conversations. I'll jump in and say that I don't think disqualification is far off because Trump basically has an instinct, a dictator sort of instinct. He was undermining, if everything is shown to be true, that he tried to insurrect violence against the U.S. government. Like, I think that is a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal. And I wouldn't trust that person to lead our armed forces and not take over the country in a military coup. You know, like, I don't trust that someone who has these instincts, and if they're proven to be true, that a second time around, he won't be emboldened to take even more radical action that undermines our democracy. And that is too big a risk for me. And yes, I understand that, you know, you're saying people should have a choice, but I don't think you allow everyone, you know, we, we have laws here that, you know, former felons in some countries, in some states can't vote. I mean, you're excluding people from the political process left and right. Why wouldn't you exclude someone who is really possibly a threat to our political process? So you want to put some kind of restrictions on who can in fact run for office? Are we, don't we already have those restrictions? I'm not a lawyer, but a question. Can everybody run if you say have been convicted of a crime, a felony, like, is, is everybody allowed to run for office? And I ask, I'm, I'm very naive about this, but I, I thought some people can't vote. So I assume those people who can't vote can't yeah, run If you can't for vote, office. you can't run. And, and you are correct. We do have restrictions. And I, you know, one of the amendments to the Massachusetts Constitution is taking away the right to vote for convicted felons. But still, I believe yep, yep. strongly in the ability of the voters to make the decision on whether or not this person should be returned. Jeff, am I wrong? I thought once they were out of jail, then they had the right to register to vote. Um, I will look that up while this discussion continues. I believe that's uh, You're talking correct. about and there, there Frank, was, you're talking about only Massachusetts? Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. The laws in Florida are entirely different. We also ought to consider the issue of collateral damage and collateral effects. That is, if he can run for office, he is still granted an outsized influence over the future of the Republican Party, which is why at this point so many senators are scrambling for cover under the technicality of constitutionality. Whether they truly believe it or not is another debate. 
But at the end of the day, the power that he holds over the party, how he holds sway by threat, is magnified or minimized by whether or not he can actually attempt to run for office again, talking about little Marco, crooked Hillary, sleepy Joe, and all the epithets and three-word phrases, stop the steal, fight for Trump, all of the things that he generates that are reduced, quite frankly, it's reductio ad absurdum, as a renowned Republican Bill Buckley would say. At the end of the day, it really comes down to the point of how do you rein him in so reason can prevail? Part of reining him in is to take away his toys. Tweet is gone, and now it comes down to whether or not he has the opportunity to go before the people and continue generating mayhem. So you just confirmed what I said earlier. You really want to keep the people from making a decision on their own about who they want to be the president. So you want to have this trial result in President Trump, the former president, to not be able to run for office by this decision, not by the decision of the voters at that time. That's interesting, Pete. Matt, can I... Excuse me. Sorry. Our previous conversations, I'm absolutely amazed that you've come to that position. Matt, the can Constitution I jump in here? allows for it. No, 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 no. Just because I need to jump off in a couple of minutes. If I mean, a quick question about voter suppression and really, you know, you're, you're pretending that we have this amazing system where people vote and that there isn't voter suppression, that there isn't already uh, ways that the system is manipulated. I would love to believe that that was the country we were in. And if that was the case, and I believe that people had full knowledge that there wasn't suppression that was systematic against different groups, then I would go with you. And I, I would go with what Jeff is saying. But I think our voting process and, you know, what what is happening right now in this country, like if you want to take it to that point, I hope you also speak out against voter suppression. Matt, Matt, the Constitution, there's an amendment in there to prevent someone running for a third presidential term. That it, that goes against your argument. There's also you are a term limit individual, aren't you? You want to not let people run again. Isn't that arguing against what you just said? Uh, you've conflated two things together. Yes, I am again, I am for term limits, no doubt about it, because of all the corruption it invites. I am not against a, a president running for office for a second time because the Constitution... But the third time the Constitution doesn't allow it. The third time the Constitution doesn't allow it. Doesn't allow the president to run for office again? After two times. After two times, they can't run for office again. After they've been president for two terms. Correct. Correct. You're limiting, you're limiting, you're limiting the people from making a political choice, which you just said you didn't want to do with our president, former President Trump. Um, we're getting close to the time I have to leave this, this uh, discussion. Um, and, and, and I'm not, and I'm not uh, trying not to answer your question, Frank. We can do this anytime you'd like, okay? Remember, the discussion group from Franklin Senior Center meets every Thursday at 10 o'clock. 
And this is the kind of conversations we have. I would like to say, yes, Trump is a bully. No doubt about it. Did, do I like, did I want Trump to be my president? No. Did I want the causes, the positions that he had uh, to be put into effect? Absolutely, I did. I had a choice in the last election between two people. And unfortunately, that's the way our system works. We normally have a choice between two people. So you have to pick the one that best satisfies your anticipation or your needs. Certainly, Hillary did not satisfy my needs, okay? So I voted for the guy, the, the particular person that I thought best would handle my needs and the country's direction. He's a bully. He's been a bully all his life. There's nothing that says you can't be a bully and still be president. If it does, I'm going to have to reread this book, okay? But like I said, I don't know that this book is the, the criterion that we use anymore. Because as, as Matt Michael said, he has a whole bunch of books. I have a whole bunch of books back there too, right? They're, they're fiction. I don't have a set of volumes of legal law. You say you could go to research it anytime you want to. Sure, you can. And I'm sure Jeff can, too, because you're lawyers and have, have spent your time in that realm. I'm just the regular guy, regular voter, a person that gets his information basically from the Internet nowadays. And Google, I checked all of you out all right, before. I, I've got notes based on what I thought your characters would be, how you would handle this today. And I did that by Google. Did you Google yourself? Do you know what they say about you? Okay. So it's interesting, right? Matt, I know you got to go. Just let me say, if we realign and come, realign political parties and come up with different groupings, I think maybe you and Michael will be in the same party. I would I hope think so. I, 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 actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to go a little bit further. I'm not sure that Jeff also would be on it. In fact, I'm not sure all of you would all be on it because it seems to me you are reasonable people who have, can have a conversation without screaming at each other, without calling you by names. So I think we could have a conversation. I love these kinds of conversations. I hope that I hope that you've taken something away from the, this uh, discussion that I have said, and I certainly have taken away this, something from this discussion that you have said. I don't know if you've noticed, but I take notes. Okay, <laughs> that means I will. We got look back at them and try to figure out what what lesson you've taught me. I really thank you for appreciate appreciate you inviting me today. I uh, hope that I've satisfied uh, what you expected. Thank you very much, and I do have to leave. So, um, thank you for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you at the senior center sometime. Thank you. It'd be great to get back together, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. Matt, great to see you. Really enjoyed seeing you again. We've had great discussions in the past, and I look forward to many more. Thank you. And Matt, I'm going to uh, join the senior center group uh, that you're, uh, you know, that you convened. So thank you again, too, as well. The clip that I'd like to play is from Fareed Zakaria on CNN. And this is his recent take on the activities in Washington, D.C. We're all wondering how the Republican Party 
the party of Abraham Lincoln got to the point that it has an elected member of Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has suggested Nancy Pelosi could be executed for treason, cast doubt on the events of 9-11, and speculated that a Jewish cabal used lasers to start California's wildfires. The answer is in plain sight. The continual accommodation of extremism by the party's leaders. This week, the Republican Congressional Caucus declined to censure Green in any way. In the Senate, Mitch McConnell has finally drawn the line, describing Green's views as loony. But it is too little too late. The party has been encouraging loony views for years. Since the 1930s, Republicans promised their voters the repeal of FDR's New Deal. When the next Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower, did nothing of the sort, the modern conservative movement emerged. When LBJ enacted the Great Society, conservatives pledged that once elected, they would tear it all down and never did. Ronald Reagan launched his political career by denouncing Medicare as a direct path to socialism. If passed, he famously warned, You and I are going to spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Of course, as president for eight years, Reagan left Medicare largely intact and actually ended up expanding the program. In the early 1990s, House leader Newt Gingrich doubled down on a rhetoric of radicalism and extremism. He promised revolution and described political opponents as the embodiment of evil who win only because they lie and cheat. E.J. Dion has described the toxic results of this strategy as the politics of disappointment and betrayal. Ted Cruz follows the same strategy today still. His 2016 platform included promises to repeal Obamacare, abolish the IRS, and balance the budget, plans that he knew could never get enacted. The Republican Party endlessly crowed about repealing and replacing Obamacare, only to come to power without any viable plan, and then quickly accommodated itself to the reality it had vowed to overturn. This entire decades-long strategy has led millions of Republicans to feel cheated and lied to by their leaders, creating an atmosphere of paranoia and suspicion toward anyone who is not utterly extreme. It is a short and direct line from the tactics of Newt Gingrich to the January 6th Capitol riot. If Republicans are searching for a conservatism that can work in the modern era, they should first stop lying to their own voters. You know, I think it's important for us to, uh, when we're looking at this issue, and I think uh, Matt's point was well taken in terms of trying to stay on topic, and I hope that we did that in some way. With regard to the last comment, I really want to see the Senate just do its job. I think, as you pointed out, Pete, they have at their disposal conviction on the article of impeachment which then leads to one removal from office, which admittedly has already happened by the people. So then the question becomes, do you take the next step and say that I'm going to remove this person's opportunity uh, to hold future office? This particular impeachment article, I think, is so egregious that that discussion has to take place. I am not comfortable with leaving it 
uh, you know, to the rhetoric of, well, let the people decide later. When you have an insurgent and an insurgency, the person has revealed their lack of allegiance to the oath that they took to protect the Constitution of the United States. This particular egregious act on the part of Trump demands that he not be given that particular opportunity in our republic again. I am very much in agreement that the protection of the right of individuals to vote, which is actually the only avenue of democracy that we have, is something that's sacred. But when we find someone who has violated that trust to the level of the former president, I think then the opportunity to deny that person an opportunity to come back into our system as a political candidate again is justified. I would agree with that. I wanted to play that clip to provide the larger context of, of what has been going on and how for some decades we have been traveling down the slippery slope that formed the Tea Party, that magnified the Tea Party ultimately to become the Trump Party. The issue of removal from office and disqualification from office, the disqualification is predicated on whether or not the Senate determines that the person in question is in fact qualified to run again. And that qualification may be a moral decision. It may be akin to whether or not the person has to date upheld the Constitution. And in that failure, the Senate certainly has the right to say that proximal cause has been clearly demonstrated between his statements and the riots, and that therefore he has failed to uphold the Constitution. And in that dereliction of duty is not qualified to return to office at any future time. It's really pretty plain and simple in my mind. Now, it may appear noble to say we will never deny the people their right to vote for any and every candidate, however qualified. But at the end of the day, clearly we are failing at that Jeffersonian principle I talk about, where an educated citizenry is the best defense for democracy. And more recently, as it is said that the Bible is the last bastion of a scoundrel, so too in these recent days, the Constitution has proven oft times to be the same. This is Frank Falvey, your host for Journeying to a More Perfect Union. Matt, thank you again for joining us and for all our regular panel, uh, Michael, Natalia, Jeff, and PJ. Uh, we appreciate your work very much. And if you have an opinion that you'd like to share with us, you can contact us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. We'd really love to hear from you. And in fact, you're welcome to participate with us on the program. Just let us know. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Peter J. for Frank Falvey for our entire roundtable. Thanks for joining us as we all journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.